This week on the show, we have OpenBSD as the perfect operating system post-nuclear apocalypse, multiprocessing support for LLDB developed by Morin Systems, porting the new hair compiler to OpenBSD, writing my first OpenBSD game using Godot, written by Suleen, FreeBSD 13 on a ThinkPad T460S, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 455, The Ken Thompson Singularity. Recorded still on May the 4th, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for online backups for truly paranoid people. And if you would like to support this show in a small donation or dropping a bit of money into a tip jar, a virtual one, go to patreon.com slash bsdnow for maybe moving ads or support us in any way possible, that would be highly appreciated. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. I'm Tom Jones. And I'm still making Star Wars references in this episode, so stay tuned. Uh, but we have headlines this week, which is probably similarly motivating, like having Tatooine destroyed by you-know-what, uh, is OpenBSD is the perfect OS post-nuclear apocalypse. Ooh. What, what, what do you mean? You know, what is it? Is it bad form to to mention the um, the non-life? Probably, mode? yeah. It's if it's appearing in the yeah. sky, they then can fence and pack people. your things. <laughs> okay, this this uh, post is on confusius.com, uh, and they write: If you're lucky enough to survive a nuclear apocalypse, you will inevitably start looking for things to do. You can forget about Facebook and TikTok because the internet will most likely be down unless Elon Musk decided to go to Mars without Starlink, but he most likely will take his internet with him. So what are you supposed to do other than play with rocks and meditate all day long? What if I told you that life during post-apocalypse doesn't have to be boring? What if I told you that you can survive without the internet? <laughs> no. <laughs> what if I told you? Okay, just let me tell you. Planning ahead. Before taking shelter in the nearby bunker, you need to bring some sort of computer with you, preferably a laptop, because desktops would require a whole desk setup to be usable. Laptops without an OS are useless. If you have Windows or Linux installed at it, you can pre you're pretty much done for because these OSs are unusable without the internet. Can you even log into Windows without the internet? You need an OS that remains useful with or without the internet. OpenBSD. That's where OpenBSD comes in. As soon as you hear the sirens urging the populace to enter bunkers, you need to quickly go onto the OpenBSD download site, download the latest install XX, install 7.1 as of the 4th of May, 2022, uh, for your laptop and bring an, a USB stick with you. Once you're inside the bunker, copy the install to your USB stick with ddif install 71.iso of equals slash dev slash sdb bs equals 64k. If you're on Windows, you're screwed because you need to download a program called Rufus from the internet to copy the image. If you have the internet in the bunker, then it's your lucky day. Otherwise, serves you right for being a heretic. Always use free software. Once you prepare the USB stick, hang out with the people at the bunker. Stop being antisocial. <laughs> Once a nuclear apocalypse has happened and you've run out of things to talk about with the other bunker denizens, it's time to install OpenBSD on your laptop because whatever it was running now is, is useless. After boot. 
Once you install OpenBSD and login, you will have an email from Theodorat himself. It's like an email from the past. You know those movies where the main character discovers a relic from the past that contains a hologram that projects a person's image and wisdom? In OpenBSD, you get an email instead. Open the mail program, the way actually type man mail. You now have everything you need to know about the mail command right in the terminal. No need for duck.go or stack overflow. Type more one inside the mail app to read the message. In this email, he, Theodorat, will tell you everything you need to know about need to know to use the OS, such as to use man and where to go next, man after boot. In the after boot man page, you will receive all the information you need to set up the OS. You can set up a graphical environment with CWM, check man ZenODM for instructions on how to set up graphical login, or you can use X in it if you want. Don't know what X in it is? Type man X in it. Man pages in OpenBSD aren't like those tiny manuals you receive when you buy a cheap iPhone knockoff from AliExpress. They're more like the Library of Alexandria. There's even games for you to play. Go to slash USR games and you'll find an assortment of games that should keep you busy for the rest of your life. With these games, you can remain at Baggins for the rest of your days instead of having to seek fun by adventuring far away like a took. I recommend the quiz game. It tests your general knowledge, which is perfect to prepare you for the rebuilding of society. Notice how you never need internet when you install OpenBSD, except for things like synchronizing with time servers or for installing extra packages. But who cares about what time when there's no work or responsibilities? And who cares about extra software? For example, there's no need for LibreOffice when you're no longer a slave to having to type stuff in writer documents from 9am to 6pm. OpenBSD was created for free men like you. Enjoy it. And, a, and an edit on the 23rd of April, 2022. A reader claimed that Linux is also usable without the internet. It depends on what you mean by usable. As far as I know, Linux man pages are like napkin notes when compared to OpenBSD ones. To learn how to use a Linux system, you will need to visit the Arch wiki page on the internet. Not ideal post-apocalypse. Also, Linux distros don't come with DMs by default. There's that. That's your selling argument. Uh, but make sure to send a message calling, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Uh, the next item is the multiprocess support for LLDB that we found on Moritz Systems blog. The Moritz Systems team has started a new contract on multiprocess support for LLDB. LLDB has replaced the GDB, the GNU debugger, as the default debugger on FreeBSD, while LLDB, the LLDB debugger, the low-level virtual machine, has a fairly wide functionality. It has not yet reached full feature parity with GDB. Uh, one of its limitations is a limited support for debugging multiple processes. This project aims to address this issue in order to bring LLDB closer to being a fully featured replacement for GDB and therefore for FreeBSD to feature a modern and complete debugger for software developers. Uh, and Mart Systems Technology Company is experienced with working with the BSD projects and uh, has done a couple projects in the past uh, with the LLVM toolchain and already worked on improving the FreeBSD support there. Yeah, so those were uh, pretty much appreciated. Yeah, the project went well, they did so far. So project background description. At the moment, LDB features some preliminary support for debugging multiple processes. Notably, it has two fundamental features. The LDB-server is capable of tracing forks. However, it requires that either the parent process or the child process is detached after the fork before further debugging. LLDB client supports multi-target debugging, like maintaining connections to multiple LLDB server instances. This permits debugging multiple independent processes. Uh, so the part that is currently lacking is the ability to combine both of these functions in order to support proper tracing 
both the parent and the child immediately after a fork. This functionality would extend the usefulness of LLDB in debugging programs using process-based parallel processing, often called multi-processing, as well as application spawning helper processes, including pipelines. The existing multi-target debugging support in LLDB requires using a separate connection for every process being debugged. On the other hand, the GDB Remote Serial Protocol features a multi-process extension that permits multiplexing requests and responses corresponding to multiple debugged processes, primarily through extending the syntax already used to multiplex packets regarding different threads. A partial support for this extension has already been added to LLDB as part of their prior work. After initially, discussion, uh, initially discussing this with the upstream, we believe that the best way forward is to continue implementing the support for GDB remote multiprocess extension. Unlike the other solution, it does not require establishing additional communication channels. This makes debugging over firewalled networks easier, and it permits using transport that do not support multiplex tools, or such as the serial port or pipes. Furthermore, though preserving protocol-level compatibility with GDB, it makes it possible to use LLDB as a client for other implementations of GDB server that do support multiprocess extensions. Okay. However, the baseline variant of the GDB remote serial protocol has a limitation that it can only report a single quote-unquote stop reason at a time. Whenever a single thread stops, the server reports this event and has to suspend all other threads until the client processes uh, the stop event and issues another request. When debugging multiple processes, this limitation extends to all the processes being debugged. That is, when a single thread of a single process stops, all threads of all processes need to be stopped as well. Uh, okay. Uh, so the non-stop protocol extension removes this limitation. In this mode, the server does not stop the remaining threads or processes from reporting an event. The server queues additional events and the client can await further events without having to resume the stop thread. Additionally, GDB supports a full non-stop mode where the CLI permits handling multiple running threads asynchronously. We do not plan to implement this at the time in LLDB as it would require significant design changes. Instead, the GDB remote plugin will always ensure that all threads from the reporting process will be stopped, but not other processes. However, the protocol support implemented as part of this contract will make implementing an optional full non-stop mode in the future easier. The additional debug processes will be presented to the client as new targets in order to reuse the existing code and avoid making major changes to the user interface. In particular, changing the behavior of existing commands such as quote-unquote process continue to apply to multiple processes would be confusing to users. If necessary, more convenient methods of working with multiple processes like targets or with targets will be implemented as new commands. And they have key deliverables listed. The first is support for the non-stop variant of GDB remote serial protocol in LLDB server and GDB remote plugin in LLDB client. That's what we mentioned. Uh, full support for multi-process GDB remote serial protocol extension in LLDB server and support for multi-process debugging in LLDB client through the multiplexing multiple LLDB targets with a single GDB remote serial protocol connection. And this work is sponsored by the FreeBSD Foundation. So your donations made this possible. No matter how hard we try, things keep happening. And we like to summarize those in the news. And the news this week starts with a blog post from Brian Callahan, who you might remember from last week, uh, me not remembering when we interviewed him, which was last year sometime. Brian writes, I imported the new hair compiler to OpenBSD. 
As soon as I finished writing up the previous blog post, oh, is that the V1? Uh, I was made aware of the announcement of a new programming language named Hair. It was pointed out to me that the Hair released with Linux and FreeBSD support. We'll just have to port it to OpenBSD. Let's get to work. Compiler and runtime, a language in two parts. Here comes in two repositories, a compiler and a runtime. The blog post when we deal with porting the compiler will port the runtime in a follow-up post. First, I, I cloned the compiler and copied the rt slash plus freebsd directory to a new rt plus openbsd directory and did the rote renaming from freebsd to openbsd in the new directory. Next, I had to modify rt slash um, plus openbsd erno.ha to reflect the reality in openbsd. The file to look at is here, and it links somewhere in the OpenBSD tree. Um, and it really is just a rote uh, making with changes to match. Then I had to do the same thing for syscall no, uh, which is just again a rote making the changes from here. And then I edited rt slash configure to copy the FreeBSD section into an OpenBSD section and made the rote changes inside the new OpenBSD section. Now I could begin building the hair compiler. The instructions said to create a new build directory and from there run dot dot slash configure. So that's what I did. Here uses QBE for its backend. Good thing I recently imported a QBE port. The first build errors, Here is not a particularly big compiler. So there are only a handful of files to build. I did run into some build errors though. The Here compiler uses a make temp function, which does not have a match in, uh, does not match the make temp prototype. That caused an error. The fix is simple. All you have to do is rename all occurrences of make temp in the hair code. I renamed it to emakeTemp since I'm not worried about selecting a final new name right now. I then had several occurrences of printf format string warnings because a dash w error was turned on from upstream. These broke the build. Fortunately, Clang will tell you that you need to change the offending format strings too. So I just listened to Clang. I think what OpenBSD differs from Linux and FreeBSD here. Think the difference between percent uh, %ld and the percent %lld. This is all legal according to the C-spec, so maybe something upstream will need to smooth over. And hey, the build finished. The instructions say you can run make check to run the test suite, so I did that. And all the tests failed. Teaching here about OpenBSD ELF binaries. OpenBSD has some special requirements for its ELF binaries. All OpenBSD binaries need a .note.openbsd ident section with a couple of magic numbers and the string openbsd. I may be misremembering, but I believe this is an artifact of when OpenBSD had Linux, Linux emulation, so the kernel would know if an ELF binary was a Linux or an OpenBSD binary. The Linux emulation was removed, but the special identifier stayed. We actually saw a special code needed for this all the way back in our Snake QR game. I needed this code. I added this code into the assembly code for the start function. I then needed to teach the hair linker script to recognize the new .note.openbsd.ident section. Now I can rebuild and retest, and the test still failed. Using GDB for the last clue, opening a test binary with GDB and forcing the debugger to break at the very first instruction with star i, I noticed the memory location for the first instruction kept changing each time I reran the program. Looks like I forgot to tell the linker that it needs to include the dash no pi flag Another quick rebuild and retest and all the tests passed. I sent a, pa a patch for these changes to the mailing list. Uh, it won't go in as is due to the printf format string mismatches between OpenBSD and the others, and maybe some other tweaks. Conclusion, this was a very quick and simple porting job, but there are always something to learn. Now the compiler is finished, I'll work on the standard library and then work on RISC-V and ARM64 support. Stay tuned. Uh -huh.
Okay, interesting. Another programming language I wasn't aware of. But as much as I was searching, the battle station plans are not in the main computer and no transmissions were made. Let's look at Celine's uh, blog post here. Writing my first OpenBSD game using Godot. And she starts uh, getting into the gaming, seems like, or at least in the development. She writes in her introductions, I'm a huge fan of video games, but never really thought about writing one. Well, this crossed my mind a few times, but I don't know anything about writing a GUI software or using OpenGL. But a few days ago, I discovered the open source game engine Godot. This game engine is a full-featured tool allowing to easily write 2D or 3D games that are portables on Android, Mac, Windows, Linux, HTML5 using WebAssembly, I guess, and operating systems where the Godot engine is available like OpenBSD. Okay, learning part. Godot offers a GUI to write games. The GUI itself being a Godot game, it's full featured and comes with a code editor, documentation, 2D and 3D views, animation like uh, yeah, tile set management and much more. The documentation is well written and gives introduction to the concepts and then we'll just teach you how to write a simple 2D game. Cool. It only took me a couple of hours to be able to start creating my very own first game and getting the grasps. Okay. She links to both the website and the Godot documentation directly. Uh, I had no experience into writing games, but only programming experience. Documentation is excellent and gives simple examples that can be easily reused thanks to the way Godot is designed. The forums are also a good way to find a solution for common problems. Okay, here's the demo part. Uh, she wrote a simple game, OpenBSD themed, especially themed against its 6.8 version for which the artwork is dedicated to the movie Hackers. It took her like eight hours, she thinks, to write it. Uh, it's long, but she didn't seem time passing at all. And she learned a lot. I have a, uh, she writes, I have a very few, or I have very interesting game in my mind, but I need to learn a lot more to be able to do it. So starting with simple games is a nice training for me. It's easy to play and uh, fun. I, she hopes so. So give it a try. She links to both to the web browser version and the Linux and the Windows version. So no... Uh, escaping here. If you wish to play an OpenBSD or on other operating systems having Godot, download the Linux binary and run godot-main-pack puffy-bubble x86 underscore 64 and enjoy. I chose a neon style to fit the theme. It's certainly not everyone's taste and she provides a nice screenshot that you can find in the article that we linked from our show notes. Nice. Okay, and last in the, the news roundup this week, we have FreeBSD 13 on ThinkPad T460S. Um, and this is written by uh, Joelle Carnet. Um, for some reasons, I decided to use FreeBSD on my laptop. Several times I've tried it in the last few years, several times I've stopped after the first issue that I felt was a sign of it not being built for me. This time I'll go for at least a whole month of using it so I can finally decide if I keep using it or switch back to OpenBSD. Uh, prepare the install media, read the manual. It is available online and should be time-saving and it helps get rid of old habits and bad assumptions. Um, download FreeBSD mini memstick file and transfer it to your stick. Uh, it did this from OpenBSD. Replace the of device with a reference to the proper one. Yeah, you don't want to nuke your own hard drive by accident. Restart the laptop with the USB stick. Hit F12 on the T460S to boot in from the USB. Um, he walks through installing uh, OpenBSD. Run the installer as described in the handbook. The options I went for were use French, 
no optional components, partition the disk with AutoZFS, network via EM0, there's no Wi-Fi for their wireless card, uh, system configuration, no unbound SSHD, mouse NTP D8, NTPD, PowerD, no dump dev, and they turned on some of the security and hardening options, uh, clear temp, disable syslogd, disable send mail, well, that should just be hmm. the default option, uh, add a user and join the wheel group. Before being able to boot the system, the ZFS encryption passphrase is required. Note that the keyboard uses a US layout at this point. One needs to learn how to type the passphrase using it. At the prompt, log in as root and, conti and continue further configuration. Uh, install a few console tools to be more comfortable. And they install Duas, Tmux, Vim, and W3M. Uh, and then they use W3M to read the handbook. Um, install some security patches using FreeBSD update. Um, and then stick within a cron tab so you can stay up to date and secure. And then tell OpenBSD where to send emails to and configure an MTA. Um, ThinkPad ACPI extras, get support for hotkeys with specific ThinkPad components by adding ACPI IBM, ACPI underscore IBM underscore load to bootloader.conf and KLD in the module for there. Uh, they checked if suspend and resume worked and it did, and they set up xorg. Uh, which involves installing a DRM KMOD drivers. The drivers can be downloaded manually. Um, it can be loaded manually, but let's reboot and check everything worked, which is always good because sometimes they don't work and you don't have a working system. Um, and then they get to wireless configuration. Um, by default, nothing is configured, nor appears in IF config output. My Broadcom BCM4356 is not recognized by FreeBSD, so I plugged in a USB dongle and configured it. Uh, it's a shame because those dongles are really quite slow. Sound right out of the box. Uh, Bluetooth is there, but no one ever seems to use Bluetooth. Um, and he talks some of the environments of their user environment. Uh, and then he finishes with some personal thoughts on running FreeBSD. I wanted to go out of my comfort zone using an OS I hadn't used since early 2000. The last FreeBSD I used was probably one from 4.x. Since then, I got used to the OpenBSD way of doing things, so I'm obviously biased. But I was also ready to be impressed. What I liked. Using FreeBSD as a workstation with Xorg feels smooth, just like Windows, Linux, or macOS. The windows pop up really quickly. The mouse feels super responsive, and there's no lag in the hardware like Firefox when switching tabs. Things like GIMP or LibreOffice take a few seconds to launch, but as far as I can tell, those react the same way no matter the OS you use. Most of the time, you can't hear the laptop fan. Compiling stuff or running with full indexation with Shotwell does turn it on, but regular email reading with Thunderbird or web surfing with Firefox does not turn it on. French localization is available from the console. That still leads to having some French messages and English help pages, but that's not the point. The point is about date and STRF time, which means that the date will be properly localized in XFC and other software. There are many virtualization options, QAMU VirtualBox Beehive. One can run other OSs in console and graphical mode. What I disliked. There's no wireless driver for my Broadcom BCM4356. That means I'm stuck with 2.4 gigahertz 802.11n when that particular Broadcom card can achieve 802.11ac connection straight from the hardware. I missed a few console tools I expected to be standard like uh, Tmux, Duas, Dig. They can be installed using packages. Uh, that's still not ideal. They're natural tools for a Unix-like environment. Although the console has been configured with a French keyboard during installation, Xorg does not benefit from that layout without specific configuration. To my understanding, this is due to Xorg being treated as an external package and not part of the system. Once the handbook example has been reproduced, the proper layout is usable in X. Unless I miss something, Hibernate is not available. I don't use it often. Most of the time, suspend is quite enough, but Hibernate is 
neat when you have a long travel time and know you won't use your laptop soon. Modules and service management have confused me quite a lot. Some things go into bootloader.conf and other things into rc.conf. Using sysr3 to enable services and service to start-stop services like why not use a single command with a set of args rather than various commands. With an update from uh, at Phyllis, uh, service foo enable can be used instead of sysrc. I did not know that. Uh, this adds more consistency. Configuring the network interface is still something I haven't don't fully understand. The WLAN layer feels uh, so complicated to me. The usage of cloned interfaces seems like an inherited layer from nowhere since there is also ifconfig directories. Translating beehive ifconfig examples into an rc.conf uh, snippet makes me sweat. I was surprised the options were not shipped in all binary packages. For example, I had to recompile from source to be able to use Redshift GTK or have face recognition in Shotwell. I expected to be able to choose between package with and package without features. Having a distinct localization system for ports configuration files is disturbing. Whether it's for XORG or third-party binaries, it does not fit with me well to have rc.d and DTC stuff under user local. I understand why it's good to do this, but I prefer to have stuff in one place. Port sync and compilation is the second item that I haven't fully understood yet. Using user ports from the installer or port snap or git is not a choice I would have liked to have. After a few trial and errors, it seems only port snap is the same option. Maybe I don't understand them when I read the handbook. I still have I still have not understood which of Portmaster, Port Upgrade, or Poudrier is the simplest tool to use when you only have a few packages to build, you want to enable a specific option. This is the most complicated thing to understand uh, on that FreeBSD release. I must have missed something. I ended up with starting a FreeBSD instance in VirtualBox and compile a few things using make package. There is a recurrent issue between Let's Encrypt certificates, NetCloud client, and FreeBSD updates. I thought it was solved using a forum thread, but it keeps coming back. Uh, what I learned, using FreeBSD as a workstation helped me confirm my OpenBSD servers were not slow at all. I could transfer files from a Celeron J4125 at 700 megabit using HTTPS and NFS. All my bash scripts are written to run using OpenBSD's KSH. On the few Linux boxes I have, they are run using bash, but I thought they were POSIX compliant. Using them with FreeBSD's SH proved me wrong. Uh, some of them would not run because the syntax was not acceptable. I have to review them to make them more POSIX compliant. FreeBSD allowed me to solve some issues with my NextCloud instance. There are still weird things happening, but it seems to be due to NextCloud client rather than the server configuration. I could also verify that errors were not due to my HTTPD relay D configuration. Uh, 20, 22.02.02 update. Uh, this overall configuration also works for my ThinkPad X260. The screen's 1080p, uh, so it doesn't need the scale factor. This was an interesting month-long experiment. Some things were great, some less, but I learned so much. Thank you, FreeBSD. Thank you, Joel. It's great getting feedback like that. Oh, yes. It's always really, it's really nice to get like a concrete list of things that just you'd expect and aren't there. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thanks. It's a great oh. article. All right. Time for the beastie bits, which sometimes is like a wretched hive of scum and villainy. You have to be cautious. <laughs> uh, the first one is actually linked from our own producer here to his own podcast, opensourcevoices.org, with an interview that he did with Deb Goodkin, executive director of the FreeBSD Foundation. And I hear that I've also, that I'm also mentioned in there, I haven't had time to listen to it, but we uh, recommend you listening to that episode because it's about a lot of the FreeBSD Foundation and 
uh, things you probably haven't heard before. So check out also the Open Source Voices podcast as a whole. There might be other interesting folks uh, in the open source space that you uh, have an interest in. Yeah, I, I was on it. So if you haven't had See? enough of me, here we go. Listen to me. <laughs> uh, the interview with Deb is really good, um, really interesting. It's great to. Deb goes into a bit of her, more of her background and how she started mm -hmm. in the industry and then how she ended up in the FreeBSD sphere. Uh, it's a really good interview. You should listen to it. It's a great podcast okay. from JT. Um, next in the Beastie Bits, we have um, a news post from hbcwire.com, which I've never heard of. Um, Tachium successfully runs FreeBSD in Prodigy ecosystem, expands open source OS support. Uh, Tachium today announced it has completed validation of its Prodigy Universal Processor and software ecosystem with the operating system FreeBSD and completed and the Prodigy instruction set ISA for FreeBSD porting. Um, and so this is an article about a processor manufacturer vendor design company called Tachium um, and they showed um, that they've done a port to FreeBSD, which is really cool. Yeah, great. Then there's a Midnight BSD minor update happening 2.1.7 uh, from April 4th. And this is uh, mentioning that the Zlib uh, deflate bug has been fixed uh, when using the Z underscore fixed strategy uh, can result in out of bounds accesses. Fixing that deflate bug when the window is full, deflate underscore store, uh, stored. Yeah. Speed up CRC32 computations by a factor of one. Dot five to three. Oh wow! Use the hardware CRC thirty two instruction on ARM v eight processes and speed up the CRC thirty two underscore combined function with powers of X tables. They added a CRC thirty two underscore combine underscore gen function and CRC thirty two combine op for fast combines. Cool. Nice to know about this. So these are security advisories. Make sure to have always the latest version running with all fixes applied. Okay, and then we have a, a pair of updates from uh, OpenBSD subprojects. So we've got uh, LibreSSL 3.5.2 released, um, which is just the first stable release of the 3.5.x branch, also available at OpenBSD 7.1. It's got two new features. Uh, the RFC 3779 API was ported from OpenSSL. Um, certificate transparency was ported from OpenSSL. And then they've got a whole bunch of bug fixes, compatibility improvements, and internal improvements. And then next, um, we have OpenBGPD 7.3 released, and this is covered on the undeadly.org, the OpenBSD journal from the Dogs for Zorba department. Uh, we've released OpenBGPD 7.3, which will be arriving soon in the OpenBGP directory of your local OpenBSD mirror. Uh, the release includes the following changes to the previous release. Macro expansion in the configuration file is improved. Adds initial FIB support for Linux. Roots can be added and removed. Next hog tracking and dynamic interface detection is still not implemented. Major refactoring in the RIB code base to add multipath support in an upcoming release. Uh, OpenBGP Open BGPD uh, portable is known to compile on FreeBSD. And Linux distributions Alpine, Debian, Fedora, RHEL, CentOS, and Ubuntu. And as I hope packagers will take interest, it's great to see a release from them. Oh, yes. Then we have uh, playing the game bottomless on OpenBSD. Is this a video? I think it's a Twitch ah, stream. Okay. Or a video. I don't know what it is. Go and go mm. look in our show notes. Oh, it's um, um, gaming by Celine. Ah. So I guess it was a stream or okay, a video. That solves the mystery. Cool. 
Uh, and next we have a windows11central.com story. Um, OpenBSD already has a version for Apple Silicon. Little by little, because it is a substantial change, new operating systems are coming with compatibility with Apple's M1 family of chips. And today we have the luxury addition to the list, OpenBSD. And it's not just any incorporation, since Apple's relationship with BSD goes back a long way, and for years it has played a very important role in the history of Cupertino, although many curio curiously many of its users completely ignore it. But let's go in parts. But first, perhaps the first thing you thought of if you didn't already know that, is whether there is a relationship between FreeBSD um, free, derivative historical Unix born alternatively as a Unix derivative at a time when Linux was still popular. Um, yeah, so it's great um, seeing a Windows 11 um, news site covering OpenBSD landing on Apple Silicon. They're probably jealous that Windows doesn't mm, run there yet. There's that. Sometimes the Unixes are faster in the porting space. Nevertheless, there is a new OpenBSD website out, number nine. Uh, number nine has uh, the too long didn't read a heading for the people who are in a hurry that OpenBSD 7.1 has been released. We mentioned this in last week's episode. Um, they mentioned that no more package updates will happen for 7.0. Syspatch will still be published, although maybe when this episode uh, will be out, you, this is probably not the case anymore. No more Syspatches for 6.9. It's now end of life and shouldn't be used any longer and OpenBSD 7.0 to 7.1 upgrade guide is available. She lists a couple highlights. We did those in last week's episode, uh, so we can probably go over that. Uh, 7.1 stable changes, no syspatch yet. Well, maybe that has changed. Uh, going further, they have articles linked there. Let's install OpenBSD Risk v64 on QEMU, OpenBSD 7.1 fan noise and high temperature solution iBlock, block scanner TCP connections under OpenBSD, and OpenBSD gaming updates in the second quarter of 2022, as well as artworks and uh, yeah, the, the authors for that. So check out the whole OpenBSD website and all the issues are also of interest for you. All right, next up we have a blog post from Dan Langle and Dan Langle's other diary. He has another more popular diary. This one is more general. Um, and it's titled, I forgot to enable compression on Oops. ZFS. I forgot to enable compression on this fresh nodes, fresh ports node. I have no idea why or how. After doing this, I went to a directory with a lot of space and copied stuff around. And he just copied some stuff around. Um, this That will free up some space, but really most of the Z pool really needs to have a ZFS send, ZFS receive done on each one. And, and so he does that and he shows the difference between before and after of turning on um turning on compression do, do you read more in here than i can see uh, no nope. he has a lot of file systems that <laughs> data sets <laughs> that i can i can see okay and then the last beastie bit we have is a real short video that we're not going to play um and it is an interview on the changelog podcast with Brian Kerningen, uh, who you might remember uh, from his very successful book in 2019, um, Unix, uh, History and a Memoir. Um, Brian Kerningen was involved um, in the early development of Unix at Bell Labs. He's the K in awk. Um, and he has a, a lovely quote here about Ken Thompson and how Ken Thompson is just a pure technological singularity. And he, he recalls some anecdotes of Ken um, showing how great a skill set he was and how a skill set he had and how great a programmer he was and it's 
definitely worth uh, two minutes and 42 seconds of your day. And they link to the full podcast too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great to see these old videos uh, being available still and getting some ideas how the founders of Unix uh, were, you know, thinking back in the days. Okay, before we start burning Jedi Knights in the forest, well, that should really not happen, um, feedback and questions time. Securing FreeBSD, Ben is the first with this question and he writes, Hi Benedict, Alan, Tom and JT, what steps do you take to secure a FreeBSD box with services exposed to the internet? For example, on Debian, I get the low-hanging fruit like sshd underscore config, firewall rules and monitoring and I always add some platform-specific tools like unattended upgrades and app armor. These basic things give me peace of mind and confidence when using the, that platform. I'd love to hear your tips for deploying FreeBSD in production without losing sleep. I've discovered the show recently and truly enjoy listening. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your extensive knowledge and experience. Uh, I mean, I, I firewall stuff. Uh, I configure SSH so that it will only accept certificates because that's never been a problem. Um, it's also great for lowering the firewall noise for people scanning mm -hmm. your machine. I definitely get a lot less scans because I only have certs. Um, yeah, all, all this stuff's good. What do you do, so Benedict? I can refer you to a recent FreeBSD Journal article by Mariusz Saborski. He wrote uh, the top 10 things you need to do uh, when first installing or after installing FreeBSD in one of the uh, recent-ish FreeBSD Journal episodes. They're all free, um, free online, downloading and viewing them. And so you can find them on uh, the FreeBSD Foundation's website. They have a security-themed uh, issue there, and you will find it in there. There's some good tips in there. And I use most of them, if not all, to secure my boxes. It's, it's good to hear. Um, one thing you might miss as well is the installer offers you a set of options for locking down the machine. Um, and if you've deployed a, a cloud image, you might want to just go through the options the installer suggests. I think you can do this from um, BSD install just on the system. Uh, it's definitely worth looking into because there's some more stuff there. Uh, the next question we have is from Dave on BSD certifications. And Dave asks, are the BSD certifications by the Linux Professional Institute useful for someone going from a Linux sysadmin to BSD? So in general, um, they are. Uh, it, it is basic um, sysadmin knowledge that you can probably take over from your Linux uh, days or your Linux work. Uh, so pretty much service configuration is the same on Linux as well as the BSDs. Although you have to be aware that you have to know about all the BSDs, not just the, your favorite BSD, like let's say OpenBSD, but also about NetBSD and FreeBSD. And there's subtle differences between them. Uh, and so that is um, the the quirk, if you want to call it that, in this certification. Although when you passed, you have shown or you can show to your future employer that you have knowledge about all three of them. Whatever BSD they are going to use, you demonstrate with this certificate that you have that. Uh, there are some learning objectives and a study guide, if I'm not mistaken, on the LPI website. And um, I can't tell you more because I was involved somehow or... Yeah, I was involved when we ported that from uh, when Lin when the BSD certification group um, ported that over, if you want to call it that, to the LPI. And so I can't tell you much because NDA and I can't tell you 
specifics, but um, it's definitely good to have a certification, especially when you're targeting a employer that's using uh, BSD and that way you can show that you have the knowledge. Yeah, and it's a, it's a good way to um, show a breadth of knowledge and a continued interest um, or to spend training budget if you don't necessarily immediately want to go and, and work for someone that's hiring free BSD citizens. Um, and I'm sure it'll be a nice tour around the platforms that are there. And then when you can, when you want to experiment with some more of the in-depth features, which are um, it can be easier to use on some BSDs than they are on Linux, if there's equivalents, then yeah, it'd be, it'd be a great experience. Um, okay, our last question this week is from Sam. And Sam asks about maintaining a port. Dear BSD now, I'd like to start contributing to the FreeBSD project by volunteering to maintain a port. Excellent. I have several reasons, but chief among them is wanting to help improve FreeBSD's security posture. Not having the skill to audit kernel code, I figure that if I can adopt a port, I can free up some time for someone else who can audit kernel code and speed up the time to patch for third-party software. I've been trying to find a list of maintained, unmaintained ports uh, ordered by security priority, so I can volunteer to take on the highest priority port whose code I can understand. I don't know what security priority should mean precisely. Maybe a combination of the port's popularity, length of its code, and the number of bugs it had historically. If there is such a list, and if so, can you direct me at it? If not, uh, what would you recommend? Are there any security-related projects for FreeBSD that elicit volunteers? The trusted BSD and kernel stress test suite project webpages don't seem to have a list of tasks they'd like to help with, but those are the only security-specific projects I can find. Thanks so much for producing this podcast. It continues to teach me a lot, and it is the highlight of my Thursdays. Ooh. Thanks, Sam. Um, I, I don't know about, about um, picking things from a priority, Um if you use FreeBSD, it, you should look for the software that doesn't have a maintainer and, and maintain that. that. I mean, the software you use. I'm sure there's lots of tools that are um, maybe not minor, but uh, not particularly complicated to maintain that you could pick up uh, and get used to the process. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest thing about tracking the security of things is being on top of what is released and being able to test as things come through. But I'm sure there's a mailing list. I mean, there was an IRC channel for FreeBSD ports, which would be a good place to ask. Yes. I don't know if there's a mailing list where you could ask this question. It might be good to go and read a mailing list to see what um, maintainers talk about on other people's questions, just so you can see what's mm -hmm. going on. You could also look at the bug database, if there are any security-related ports in there, or patches, or that need patches. Or you can use the sorting and filtering options on fresh ports for finding the ports that have security focus or in that security category. I'm sure there are a couple of them. Uh, I generally like your approach that you want to help out and free time for other people. That's that's amazing. It's just uh, good to see this from the community. And who knows, like I, I, there was a thread the other day on, on Twitter where, where someone was like, the Porter's Handbook is so nice to, or so good to read. They already started porting one software and are now maintaining 10 of them after a couple of weeks. And it's like amazing to to get this from the community. Yeah, and I think the, the biggest impact you can have from um, outside the project is to learn the tools in a way that will help people. Um, and I understand the desire to fix the security posture, but if all of your changes need to be reviewed and committed by a committer, then 
you're helping by preparing them, but you're not helping all the way. But you can help a lot by making sure that stuff doesn't go out of date and making sure that the stuff you use is up to date. Um, there's always a need for people to test stuff. Oh, yeah. Because everyone's work case, everyone's use cases are so different that you're going to unearth issues. Um, and so running FreeBSD and reporting bugs and helping triage the bugs you find is a, is a great way to start getting involved. It's always difficult to ask how to start because once you start interacting with any open source software, you have like an unending list of bugs and features mm. to add. And it's so difficult on the other side being like, well, can't you just see all the, pro all the problems I deal with every day? Mm. Fix those. Uh, but yeah, no, it's great. Uh, I, I wish the best of luck to you. I hope um, that we get uh, uh, email to the FreeBSD developers list in a, in a year or so when you're getting a commit bit through. But, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, Good luck. very well said. Yeah, especially when people um, like this sort of work, then um, it's typical that they start doing more work and that benefits pretty much everyone. So I think that is all for the feedback now. And this is also the end of this episode. Anything else from you? Tom, that you are now... You must you must have I one have last one. Star Wars I, joke. I, of course, couldn't leave with. you without one. So if there's anyone out there still doubting the BSDs as a whole, you just tell them the wise words, I find your lack of faith disturbing. See you next week. <laughs> May the that, fourth be with too, you. Yeah. <laughs>